Hey everyone, this is Mike and Maurice with the Ohio Constitution Podcast, here for our second episode, and that last episode, the first episode, was pretty philosophical, just a background on myself, Maurice, why we're doing this, uh, why we're interested in, in property rights in Ohio and, and even elsewhere. But now we're going to start to dive into actual issues, and in fact, you know, we have the guru himself of litigating constitutional issues in Ohio. Uh, and we're going to be talking about Maurice's own cases, uh, one at the city of Oakwood and one at the city of Bedford, um, challenging point-of-sale inspections in Ohio. And point-of-sale inspections have been around for, for quite a bit, I, I think, Maurice. And, but, you know, what are we talking about here? I'm selling my house to Maurice. The city, the city has an ordinance that says before the property can transfer, we get to come and do an inspection and cite you, cite you seller, Mike, for a bunch of uh, housing code violations. And until you fix those, you cannot transfer your property. So you have a few issues there. You have, you have first that restriction of a transfer of my own property. You're, you're making my property effectively um, non-transferable. And then the other issue is you have a coerced... Um, you have a coerced uh, search of your property without a warrant. So these have been around in Ohio for for quite a bit of time, and uh, Maurice has really started to pick it up in terms of challenging these. And he's had two successful challenges in federal court um, in the past in the past uh, year, year and a half, right, Maurice? Right, right. Um, and it wasn't, and the, the regulations are even. Um, better than you give them the credit for because not only do you get to um, have a government forced government inspection and have to pass that inspection to sell your house you get to pay for all of this too um, you have to pay an inspection fee that in some cities is up to something like $400 I think Maple Heights maybe is really high um, those are usually in the Cleveland area but, um, but yeah we've had great success in defeating these um, we do a lot of Fourth Amendment work protecting private property rights um, in Ohio, and the Fourth Amendment has gotten really strong on these issues. And a lot of people don't realize that you can keep regulators, building officials, and other kinds of bureaucrats out of your house through the Fourth Amendment the same way that you could keep the police out when it's a criminal search. It, it applies to regulatory searches as well. And the Supreme Court about five years ago, a case called U.S. v. Jones, um, reinvigorated the notion that the Fourth Amendment exists to protect private property rights. It exists to give you a right to exclude government from your home, maybe even your car, your, your Regardless business. of who that government is. Right. Because I, government, I think you, you and yeah, I were talking, yeah. and you said a lot of people think Fourth Amendment rights limited to police. The police. It, yeah. It's a police thing. Yeah. Well, do they know that code enforcement comes knocking on your door, even if you're a renter, and you don't necessarily have to let them in just because they say, hey, we're here to inspect the property. The same restrictions apply. It's government. It's not police. Yeah, this is good. Um, this is good because I think we might have overlooked it if you didn't say that. But the Fourth Amendment um, prohibits unreasonable searches. Courts have said that unreasonable, more or less, is a warrantless search. A warrantless search will be unreasonable and will be invalid nine times out of ten. There are some little exceptions to that. Um, for highly regulated businesses, for example, 
for people on parole or probation or something like that. So um, school children may be at school, their lockers can be searched. So there are a few um, minor exceptions, but for the most part, um, if, if any government agent wants to search your property and that search is to look for information, um, even if it does not involve a crime and only a regulatory compliance, that is a search for the purposes of the Fourth Amendment, and it is an unreasonable search if it is warrantless nine times out of ten. Um, the Ohio Constitution also has an analog to the Fourth Amendment, Section um, uh, four, 14, I want to say. Um, one, of the, one of the shortcomings there is actually that, um, as Attorney General, Mike DeWine worked really hard to eliminate the warrant requirement um, as a component of the Ohio Constitution's safeguards. So it's actually no more protective. Unlike many parts of the Ohio Constitution, it's actually no more protective at this point anyway of our privacy or property rights than the federal Constitution. Um, But um, whether it was U.S. v. Jones, the GPS tracker case, or a great decision, um, including the liberal block of the court as the majority, Ironically, a few years back in a case called Patel v. City of Los Angeles, um, where the Supreme Court held that uh, a hotel operator had Fourth Amendment rights in his guest list, and the um, police could not just barge into his hotel and go through the guest list and see the Social Security numbers um, and all kinds of other private information of the people staying at the hotel without a warrant. Um, We've really seen ramped up Fourth Amendment protections. We won... Baker v. Portsmouth, a great um, win against rental inspections, forced rental inspections in the city of Portsmouth in southern Ohio. And it was just a natural corollary from there to jump into point-of-sale uh, inspections, which Mike accurately characterized and, and noted have been around for like 40 years. You know, most of these requirements that we're knocking out in Ohio have existed longer than either of us have been alive. So let's get into Thompson versus City of Oakwood. I think that was the first of the two cases, correct? Yeah. You brought that one before Bedford. Yeah. In, in you know, what was interesting about the point of sale law that you were challenging in, in Oakwood was that up until 1992, it, it had a warrant requirement. And when you challenged it, well, at least that's what the judge stipulated to in your summary judgment. He said, even if. You know, oh, it wasn't doesn't even, really matter. I see. I, well, let's assume that there was a warrant requirement. Um, eventually, it was taken out or wasn't there at all either way. Um, and specifically, the city said, hey, without, without a sale inspection, your transfer of property would be unlawful. And they tried to backtrack a little bit and say, well, if the seller didn't get the point of sale inspection, then it would just transfer to the buyer. We wouldn't actually stop mm-hmm. the sale. But the, but the law read as it read. And that, that's really key in this when you get into the coercion aspect of, of consented searches and, um, and things like that. It's a crime. It's a, uh, in most cities that have had these laws, um, they made it a crime, and not just any crime, frequently a first-degree misdemeanor. Um, for those who don't know, first-degree misdemeanor is the highest degree of misdemeanor, just below uh, the lowest degree of felony. And under Ohio law, a uh, first-degree misdemeanor is 180 days in jail and a fine, I think I want to say up to $1,500 now. Um, 
So a, a DUI is a, a first-degree misdemeanor, for example. So if you want to sell your own house to a willing buyer that has had a private inspector go through the house. Or even if they don't want a private inspector. Yeah, they, they want they it as is. Right. They're either fully informed or they're willing to take the risk. They're willing to say, look, um, there could be problems here, but I want to buy the house anyway because it's a good investment. Um, happens at foreclosure sales, for example. Um, they don't get a chance to inspect ahead of time. But they're willing to roll the dice, take the risk, um, and fix the place up. Whatever reason, two consenting adults want to exchange a piece of land with a structure on it that somebody might live in. Um, they have to get, pay for, and pass this point of sale. And if they transfer the property without doing that, it is a crime, and government will put you in jail, fine you, or derail the sale if they can stop it before the closing date. Um, and, and they will do it in the most um, minor scenarios imaginable. So, Mike, you asked about Oakwood. Our client, Jason Thompson, who is of no relation um, to me, in Oakwood, he simply transferred his property from his own name to his LLC. Um, so, common ownership transfer, effectively. That's right. It and was they wanted, and they wanted a point of sale inspection for a common ownership transfer. Yeah, yeah. He transferred it from. Uh, he owned a few properties, and he heard it was a smart idea to put your rental houses in LLCs. So he he had it in his name, and he put it in whatever three twenty five Hilltop LLC, which is the address of the property. Maybe it had one other LLC member, which is maybe his wife or something like that. Um, so that triggered a letter from the city indicating, look, buddy, um, you just broke our law um, without getting the inspection. You need to get the inspection within 30 days or um, you'll be fine, prosecuted. The term prosecuted is, was used there and is usually used. Um, so we, we had what we needed. Um, and, and I will say likewise when we see the city of Bedford, which is a suburb outside of Cleveland. Oakwood is, um, for those who don't know, an affluent suburb outside of Dayton, um, and Oakwood claims that the point-of-sale inspection regulation regime that they have um, has helped make and keep their suburb affluent. Um, never mind that there are many more affluent suburbs that don't have these sorts of requirements at all, including with older housing stocks, including where I live in German Village, for example, uh, in downtown Columbus. Um, but um, Bedford is kind of the opposite. Bedford was crying, woe is us. Um, we had a number of houses foreclosed upon in 2008. Um, we, the housing crisis, quote-unquote, hit us hard, and um, our properties are in bad condition, so we need to inspect them. So you hear it on both sides. We need to keep them good, or we need to make them Doesn't good. Doesn't that kind of just destroy both arguments? In a sense, yeah. when you got both sides... When you've got both extremes arguing the same thing as to why they need to do something, I mean, in my mind, that kind of kills it for you. Yeah. Well, the rationales are always shifting for these things. Um, uh, you know, to, to make the, the housing stock prettier or to protect people from potential fires or other sorts of issues, um, the, the rationales were all often shifting. What I really think undermined, and we're talking kind of more policy than law here, but what really sort of undermined the city's rationale for doing this was the fact that um, they would still say in all of their paperwork and in all of their laws, the city disclaims any liability 
for these inspections. The city is not liable if it turns out there's a defect that the city does not discover. You are encouraged to get your own private home inspector. And in fact, there were cases where um, homeowners would sue the city and say, hey, there was this huge leak in the property. The city did a pre-sale inspection or a point-of-sale inspection and didn't discover this leak. And the court would say, too bad. The city is not liable for that so, failure So you have to do the inspection. Cities say it's a visual inspection. They look oh, around. If they see something they don't like, they tell you to fix it. So this is not an inspection. They say expressly, do not rely upon our inspection. It's not yeah, an inspection for you, the potential buyer or the potential seller. Um, so there are a number of things that undercut the rationale. I, but I think most tellingly, um, there are many, many nice neighborhoods and nice cities that don't have point-of-sale requirements. Cities have risen um, from poverty to affluence, and neighborhoods have done the same without point-of-sale requirements. In fact, um, the point-of-sale requirements can impede the opportunity for cities to improve, the opportunity for what some might derisively call gentrification even, in that these ordinances would effectively ban the sale of investment property. So if you have a fixer-upper, an old house, um, you know, needs some work, and you have a contractor or an investor who wants to buy that um, and actually benefits from that bargain, wants to buy a fixer-upper and can do better buying that house low and doing the work himself or with people he knows um, and, and doubling the value of the home or tripling the value. The city says, too bad. Um, it's unsellable in that condition, um, and we don't believe you, the homeowner, will fix it up enough. Um, or you, the seller, will fix it up before you put it on the market. We don't believe you'll listen to your real estate agent who says, you know, paint this, do that, do this, um, before you put it on the market. Well, Maurice, they do also favor wealthier, the more affluent. At least look at Shaker Heights. We have a number of uh, rentals, a number. We've divested quite a bit, and we probably only have two now. But we've had a number of rentals in Shaker Heights over the years. And Shaker Heights' point-of-sale inspection has an escrow requirement. Yeah. If Shaker Heights come th comes through and says you have 50 violations, they tell you, go get a contractor to quote out what it will cost to fix those violations. So if it's $100,000, you must escrow with the city of Shaker Heights $150,000. They take one and a half. So now you, have to, you not only have to come up with the money to buy the property, yeah. which probably in a condition that's not very easy to get bank financing, but let's even assume that you can get bank financing. You've got to come up with a down payment. Then you have to come up with 150% of um, the escrow of, of that escrow money. Do banks the, ever give you that as part of the loan, or is that something you got to pay out of pocket? Out typically of pocket. as an investor, out of pocket. Wow. So, so it keeps out. It just keeps out poor and middle class. That's people. exactly it. Yeah. it. It prohibits it poor or even even upper middle class people. If I've got $100,000 in repairs, but I have to escrow 150, I've got to have $250,000 total because. It doesn't work like a bank where they'll release the money to you as it gets done. They'll come do an inspection, release the money. No, you get all the work done yourself, and then they will come do a final inspection, and even then they always fight you. They'll say, we'll, we'll release half of it right now, we'll, mm. we'll, but we want you to change a few little things here. Well, that's $2,000 worth of changes. You want to hold back 75000 Yeah, it's just how we do things. I mean, that, that's what you're dealing with at these cities. Yeah, it, so you've got to be affluent enough to keep – a ton of your cash tied up for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of the third world countries have um, capital requirements. We're really very fortunate in the United States 
have a relatively free real estate market compared to some places where um, you can't buy, say, a $100,000 house unless you prove that you have $500,000 in, in net worth, for example. And that keeps out all kinds of, especially local people. Um, Morocco has a regulation like that. Um, it encourages a lot of foreign investment. So you see a lot of rich oligarch types buying in these areas because of the owners that can afford to. And it almost does seem like a backhanded way to keep out, you know, quote unquote, the wrong kind of people right. from your trendy, affluent um, neighborhood. And that's um, one of the downstream um, consequences, intended or unintended, of these regulations um, is, to, is to keep out people who want to invest and fix the property up or to keep out middle class people um, want to improve the property in these in these trendier places that have them, and you know it gets back to our first principles. Um, the the notion that um, a, a person would not want to fix up their own home is um, by and large preposterous. The idea that um, your most important asset, you know, your two three hundred thousand dollar home, that unless the city orders you to fix it up and holds your money and feeds it back to you as you do so, that you won't fix it up, that you don't want to improve your property or maintain your property, um, is just at odds at all common sense that we have about people, particularly people who are homeowners. You know, it may be a little bit more true of tenants who are itinerant or is passing through town, um, but it's not terribly true of people who own their own home. They tend to value where they live, and they also, um, if they want to move, they want it to be in good condition, more or less. So it's it's bullying um, and it's paternalism and treating people like children in, in an area where they've proven they've gotten a mortgage, they've gotten a house, they've proven themselves not to be children. Um, and so it's particularly onerous in that respect. Well, and even getting back to um, getting back to the idea that this government entity knows best for you when you buy a house. When you buy a house, you don't know what condition you want to live in. You don't know what you're willing to accept. The The powers on high in their ivory tower know what's best for you, Maurice. And we say that you shouldn't live in that house unless you fix this, this, and this at this cost. And how much sense does that make? Yeah, I, I think um, there are a few other, I, ca- I think we're kind of in the category of reasons why we want to litigate these cases. Uh, or have been, um, and these are all good reasons. I, I would add that the um, the homeowner, homeowner can be trapped in the house uh, frequently in these circumstances. We presented a woman in, in Bedford who um, was ordered to do um, over $20,000 in work to her $80,000 house. She's a woman who needed to move, lost her job, um, and needed to move closer to her new job, which meant needing to buy a house or come, come up with a down payment um, or at least – um, a security deposit to rent somewhere else. So um, you're you're biting people at a very stressful time um, where they're trying to get out of the neighborhood or the city and into somewhere new. So they're short on funds and and they can't move because they've got what is essentially a lien. You know, the local government comes along like they're a mortgage holder and puts a new mortgage out of nowhere on your house that you never signed up for and never anticipated. And you can't move until you pay off that mortgage or find somebody who's willing to. And if it's not a good deal, you know, if it's an $80,000 house that requires 20 in work, but no investor sees that as a good deal, they don't want to buy it anymore. Um, so the house goes unrepaired, so the work never gets done. 
in effect. Um, so the house stays in the lower level condition with a person who doesn't want to be there, trapped there, um, and criminally liable if if they want um, to move. And frequently what we found is that the cities prohibit private inspections. They only allow the government to do the inspection. They charge extortionate fees. And once they're into the house, they just come up with thousands and thousands of dollars in mandates, um, you know, change the electrical, change the, the, the piping for the water, um, repaint the colors, uh, fix the crack in the asphalt. And this will derail sales, um, and it will be things that were fine for decades and that don't need to be fixed. And so the most important thing, getting back to the Fourth Amendment angle, you can do is keep government officials out of your house in the first place because um, they don't they don't really want to work with you and they don't have they aren't gun shy about imposing these mandates once they're and in there th- and effectively threatening you with with um, with the violation of the law and, and you know that gets us into into Oakwood a little bit yeah um, on that coercion piece I mean real quick just kind of give the give the brief synopsis of what basis you challenged the Oakwood point of sale law on obviously fourth fourth amendment and yeah. then what did the judge ultimately find uh, when he granted you partial summary judgment well one thing i want to add as well in the bedford case the um the basis for the inspection was equally frivolous so we talked about okay. this it. notion of switching um from the owner to the llc um in bedford it was a similar situation and in some ways even more unbelievable our, our plaintiff ken pund owned a home and he was in the process of um, selling that home over time to his daughter, who was living there under a land contract, basically as a tenant. So his daughter, um, already living in the house, poised to buy the house from him at you know, a better deal than obviously he would give you or I. Um, and the city says, no, um, we need to do uh, a point-of-sale inspection before your daughter can take title to the house that she already lives in from her father now who is that protecting do we really think that um ken is going to screw over his daughter and give her a house with all these defects no we don't do we i really? don't know their relationship yeah maybe. well <laughs> maybe <laughs> he seems like a nice guy for, right, for three good. years <laughs> um he um you know and and she's lived in the house for several years at that point so she knows about what the house's uh, potential defects might be as well um so there again, sort of a really frivolous example of the form, the formulaic, the formality in these inspection ordinances. So we, we won both of these cases. We brought Fourth Amendment claims to knock out the inspections and to recover the money that people had paid in inspection fees. Um, about a year ago, uh, the judge in Oakwood ruled in our favor, found Oakwood's ordinance violated plaintiffs' Fourth Amendment rights by subject, subjecting them to a warrantless search without valid consent and added that the court agrees that an Oakwood property owner could not have provided voluntary consent under the prior ordinance because failure to do so could result in denial of a certificate of occupancy and a criminal penalty. A person cannot provide such uncontaminated consent when refusal to do so empowers the municipal authority to deny him the right to sell his property. Well, and that, and that, and that was super important in Oakwood. Um, the fact that there was this criminal piece to it, um, regardless of whether or not the housing inspector said, you will go to jail for this, the judge found this is facially 
mm. invalid under the Fourth Amendment because you can't have legitimate consent to um, to a to a warrantless search when the penalty for not doing so is a criminal violation. And and I think Oakwood came out and said, well, we would never actually enforce the criminal piece of it. And the judge basically said, I don't care. It, it doesn't matter. It is in the law. It is still something it could face whether or not you tell me here right now that you wouldn't. The point is, it is part of the law. And that takes away any chance at, at consent. Because part of Oakwood's argument was, okay, well, the home, the home, uh, the homeowner uh, permitted us to come in and, and do the inspection. Yeah, they wouldn't let us into the garage, I think it was, but they permitted us to do um, other parts of the of the house under an inspection. So that was voluntary consent. Mm, it was a little messier than that, actually. The okay. real estate agent, uh, the real estate agent, against the owner's oh, um, best right. wishes, that's ushered right. the city through the house, through part of the house, but not through a full inspection. Is actually muddier facts than we would prefer to litigate. On a, on a typical basis, but well, you had an agency mm. issue, but I mean that the the judge basically avoided that by just simply saying the fact that you had this criminal piece in here in this law. Yeah, unless if you do not do <coughs> an inspe- if you do not permit an, an inspection, you could go to jail. You could get fined. Was enough to just say I don't care who gave the the authority to go into the house or who denied the authority to yeah. go into parts of it. It's, it's such a good time. Um, to do, and I think one of the reasons I'm happy we're doing this podcast is it's such a good time to do a little tangential sidebar that we don't get to do um, in other formats, and that is to say um, something that Friedrich Hayek taught in The Road to Serfdom in the 1940s, um, which is that the best of intentions and the best aspirations when undertaken through government necessarily devolve into totalitarianism. What he meant by that and what he said he meant by that um, and Hayek won a Nobel Prize in economics, um, although not for this particular work. But um, he observed that um, the only way for government to enforce these sort of aspirational things, oh, everybody's house should be pretty, um, everybody should have uh, health insurance, not just any health insurance, but the right kind, um, you know, the supermax kind. The only way to enforce these things is ultimately through arresting people, um, through criminalizing these things if you don't comply. Right. So the penalty for noncompliance is often criminal. And so I don't know if you recall in high school, college, law school, there used to be this little little contest, that uh, essay contest kids would be um, required to do, that there ought to be a law. I think it should have been called there ought not to be a law. And talk about, but the kids would propose new laws. When you propose a new law, you're criminalizing some behavior that's not currently criminalized. And you're saying this is so important that we're going to throw people in jail if they don't comply, because otherwise they, they may not comply. Now, that said, um, this is an important Fourth Amendment principle. If the government is demanding to search your home or do anything to you and the penalty is taking away your business, that's also impermissible coercion. So to be clear, courts have said um, that you don't need to prove that you would be prosecuted. The fact that the city would deny you the right to occupy the property until it's inspected is also sufficient. You don't need a criminal violation. Yeah, it's a yeah. house, and if you can't occupy the house, that's sometimes worse. You know, right. if you have a five hundred thousand dollars house that must go unoccupied, or you can do a, a month in jail, you might rationally choose to do a month in jail as a, a you know as somebody who's worried about your your cash flow or, or your income or something like that. So it might actually be worse to not be able to live in your own house or rent it out to somebody else if it's a major source of income for you. So um, the court found that the, the consent 
to allow the search was coerced. And, of, for, of course, people typically did facially kind of consent nominally because they were afraid of being charged with a crime or afraid of losing the right to sell their house. So the, the city said, look, people always consent to these searches. They love these searches, in fact, <laughs> because they always let us do them. They're letting you do it because you're telling them you're going to put them in jail and derail the sale of their house if they don't. I, I, can, t- I can tell you firsthand that that happened to us in the past six months with a property transfer that we had in Shaker. And we actually, you know, I'm probably criminalizing myself right now, um, but we, or indicting myself rather. I will not defend you. I'd like to see you in prison. (laughs) But we actually had the transfer occur, and then Shaker Heights called and said, hey, hey, you did this transfer. You never got a point of sale. And the guy, the gentleman, his name was Walt, uh, very aggressive, said, I'll reverse this transfer right now. You're going to get that point of sale done. And I said, no, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just not going to happen. Uh, but most people aren't like me. I, you know, I had a decent understanding of what they could and could not do. I have a decent understanding that Shaker Heights' point of sale inspection is one lawsuit away from being declared invalid. And, but I'm not, but I'm not, the, I'm not the normal person. How many people have, has that Walt guy called um, that have had a successful transfer that he coerces them effectively into doing a subsequent point of sale or working with the ultimate buyer on a on a point of sale if they're the seller yeah. um, that didn't know that they could refuse because that loss on such thin ice. Yeah, and that, that's true that people don't um, people don't know their rights, and particularly these point of sale ordinances have been around like forty years. People just assume that they're a way of life that is part of the problem, part of the system, part of what you have to do, a hoop you have to jump through, and. Um, they have been around so long because they go unchallenged for exactly the reason that you're you're talking about. If I'm a homeowner um, and I'm ready to move to a new city, I've got a new job, um, or I'm staying in the same city, but I've got a new house and I'm really concerned, I don't want to carry two mortgages, um, I'm on my way out the door and I just want to get my house sold. And finally, finally, I've gotten a buyer, which is not always an easy thing to do depending on where you live. So if somebody's willing to pay me a price that I'm willing to take, um, they had a private inspector run through the house, and maybe there are a few small issues, but everybody's good with it. We'll figure it out at the purchase price. We can figure this thing out, right? But um, then the city comes in and says, no, no, no. You're going to get the the inspection. You're going to have to pass the inspection, make these patches. And so people just go along to get along because this is a very stressful period for them. They're moving out of the city they just want to get their house sold and get on with their lives um, with what is their biggest asset for most people. So um, for 40 years, these things went unchallenged because nobody had the right incentive. It was the seller who was searched, but he was on his way out the door. The buyer would come in but didn't have a Fourth Amendment right because it wasn't the buyer who was searched. The property was searched when it belonged to the seller, so the Fourth Amendment right didn't belong to the buyer. Um, but the Fourth the buyer would sometimes get caught with all of these um, escrow requirements that you're talking about, but there was nothing he could do. So you have to – we had to very carefully structure this litigation um, in a way where we could represent the interests of the sellers um, at the time that they were trying to sell and enjoin the city from, from searching them on the precipice of their closing of the houses they were trying to sell to these willing buyers. Um, and we were able to win both cases. You know, Bedford, we won as well. Bedford, the court said Bedford homeowners had no real choice but to comply with the city's warrantless inspection under the point-of-sale ordinance. Even two days of noncompliance warranted imprisonment up to six months. Homeowners cannot reasonably be put to this kind of choice. 
So again, we see compelled searches um, as kind of the touchstone of why these laws are unconstitutional. And not just that, um, we've been successful in both cases in, in getting restitution for everybody who was inspected and had to pay this obnoxious I got fee. that notice. I got yeah. that I did got you? that notice in Bedford. Yep. Okay, you own land in Bedford. Yep, we own property. Homes. We own homes in Bedford and I and I got the notice and I remember thinking, Man, I, I this is this is really great. Maurice, you know, before we run out of time, I think we have like five, ten minutes left. Um, what's the future What's the future of this case law? I mean, I mean yeah. how does it, Question. you know, part of it, part of how cities are going to try to get around this is by um, putting in an administrative warrant requirement. Probably not a full warrant requirement, except yeah. uh, if you look at Shakers, I think that they have a full warrant requirement, a judicial, judicially uh, approved warrant requirement. Um, but most of them will tr- probably try to get away with an administrative uh, warrant. What's the future of that? Because in my mind, based on... Uh, based on my readings of the law, I don't think an administrative warrant in and of itself makes these enforceable. I think you still have issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think... Um, and by the, you have issues, I mean the city will still have issues. Well, have, yeah, and, and we have issues too. Um, you know, part of deciding that um, we're going to be the the organization responsible for protecting Ohioans' property rights um, comes... Th- you know, with that comes the accountability of seeing these things through. Um, we have accomplished a great deal in just keeping the government out of the interior of the properties. So the one very clear principle is government can no longer forcibly access the interior of your property unless somehow they can get a warrant. So part of being accountable now is, is helping people with this next level of issues and seeing it through. Um, and, and And that is exactly what you said. Um, Some cities decided to add a warrant provision to their codes that say if the homeowner doesn't consent, we can get a warrant um, and then go into the property. The problem with that is that it doesn't work as a matter of constitutional law. You can't get a a search warrant to search somebody's home um, for the sole reason that it's on the market and for sale. That's not probable cause. The Fourth Amendment says warrants shall only be issued upon probable cause, period. That is the text of the Fourth Amendment. So um, a city can't do that. If a city does do that, and if you're a listener to this podcast and you've witnessed that or been subject to that, you can challenge that issuance of the warrant, um, and it would be found to be an invalid warrant. You can enjoin your municipal court from issuing another warrant like that. Uh, another thing that you can do, some other cities, um, oh, and I should add, um, if you are somebody in that position, you need to say no. So the city's going to seek your consent first. Um, you now have a choice. You can say no, and then the city has to get a warrant that they can't get. So you as a, a homeowner needs needs to be aware that you can say no. Um, the other thing that cities are trying to do in the alternative is only do exterior code violation type inspections and we can't do a lot about that um because it's out in the public it's out yeah yeah you know what the city they see it what the city can't do is search your curtilage they can't um they can't um pull vault into your backyard um or anything like that even though it's exterior Uh, but if they can see a broken window um from the sidewalk or from the street they can order you to fix that up the one thing about that is many of the cities had these 200 dollars inspection fees 
and that was for interior and exterior. Now they're only doing exterior, and they're keeping the inspection fee at $200. That's an unconstitutional private property tax um, under the Ohio Constitution to the extent that they're now overbilling you on a charge on your property. So that's something that we can do something about when these fees are excessive. And then, um, like you said, Mike, um, the the escrow, you know, when they're, when a city is telling you uh, you need to um, pony up for $100,000 when you, when you buy a house in that city and, in fact, take from you the very money that you need to pay the contractors to fix the house up, like that's going to improve the situation somehow. Um, that's something called an exaction and is unconstitutional under the 14th Amendment unconstitutional conditions doctrine. The idea being that government is forcing you to give up money in order to have your property rights. Um, and it's taking that money. And when it takes it, it just sits on it. Maybe it earns interest on it. It doesn't give you that interest that yeah. you could have earned. And, in fact, it feeds it back to you, like you were mentioning, piecemeal. Um, you, you, you hire the roofer. You pay the roofer. Uh, the city comes out and says, eh, we don't like the roof job. We think the roofer could have done better. So you need to fix the roof up even more if you want to get your money back. Um, this is uh, – Again, a great example of paternalism, um, the city treating itself like a father and you like a child that needs an allowance from them, even with your own money, uh, of all things. So um, we're looking to get into challenging these search warrants, challenging these escrows, um, and challenging kind of overbilling for these exterior fees now and and sort of wiping this issue clean so that we have a a free-flowing real estate market in Ohio that's – both more free but also more affordable um, when appropriate and and also um, protects values in other cases when appropriate. Awesome. Well, thanks, Maurice. That's all we got for today. Uh, But keep us posted on how the rest of these uh, cases go. You got it.